Welcome back to The Exam Room. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Vardabedian, a.k.a. Dr. V from 33 Charts. In this episode, I'm joined by Sarah Mojarad from the USC Keck School of Medicine, where she teaches social media and communication to the next generation of engineers and physicians. Now, you guys know me as someone who loves to think about how doctors are using social media, so I really get into this conversation with Sarah. We covered medical misinformation, authority, influence, professionalism, and most importantly, how doctors are leveraging the public space during the COVID-19 crisis. I love this conversation with this insightful young medical communication professional, and I think you will too. Enjoy. Sarah Mojarad, welcome to the exam room. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this because I think we're kind of kindred spirits on some level, since we both think about what doctors are doing on social. We think about professionalism, misinformation, literacy, public presence. So it's wonderful to finally meet you here and have you here in the exam room. Yeah, it's great to be here. Really happy to have this discussion with you. Tell us a little bit about your background. You have a fascinating background and tell us what you do at USC and how what got you there. Sure. So I am a lecturer at USC and I have faculty appointments in the School of Engineering and the School of Medicine. My academic background is in psychology and communications. And I landed at USC after initially starting to teach at Caltech. And I co-created the course Social Media for Scientists while I was there. And I did this with a, a chemical engineer we had really thought that some of the areas of communication education were lacking. And this course was very modern and our approach to sort of tackling this issue. At USC, I brought that course over with me. And I also started diving into medicine and teaching online professionalism at the medical school. Were you the first person to venture into this at USC or had they tried this in the past? I was the first, and I was actually recruited by the former dean to put together this program. He really valued um, medical communication. Oh, very good. Uh, I'm not sure the listeners may or may not be aware, but I ran digital professionalism for Baylor College of Medicine for about three or four years back uh, when social first came about, and so I faced some of those very same challenges. Obviously, you had buy-in from leadership, so it was easy to get curriculum time, right? Yeah. And that's really important because medical school curriculum is just, there aren't enough hours as it is. So um, really important. So those of you listening who read 33 charts or have heard my public physician workshops know that I see our public presence as a new professional responsibility. And I've always contended that physicians are really not adequately prepared for this current communication environment. Do you think categorically that we're taking communication education seriously enough, you know, as it relates to public networks and social media? I would like to hope so, but in my own experience, I don't think that medical education is quite there yet. Oftentimes the biggest hurdle I have with students is getting them to think about their professional online presence in a way that's kind of decoupled from their personal identity. If they're going to be mm -hmm. using the, the credentials online, they have to remember that that impacts everybody in the medical profession. So we had uh, our digital smarts course at Baylor. It was a longitudinal curriculum that brought kids from first year through fourth year. And that very first year was really centered on 
the formation of their digital identity online and how it was, as, as you suggest, very different from the way they were in college. And so uh, I don't think I would agree with you. I don't think medical education is taking this seriously enough. The AAMC you know, about 10 years ago really tried to institute a national curriculum across medical schools, but never quite took off just because of this curriculum space issue. So mm-hmm. it looks like we have work to do. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's interesting when social media first broke years ago, there was so much concern about professionalism. Um, and we really thought that social media was really going to bring institutions to their knees with risk, but none of it really bore out. And we kind of figured out that doctors generally, I think, know how to carry themselves online. Would you agree with that? I think so. I, I just think it's important to remember that if something is public facing, anybody can see that content, even if it isn't just geared towards physicians specifically. Right, 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 right. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot of it is very common sense. I've always said, you know, suggested that we never create guidelines to help people monitor their behavior at a Mexican restaurant on Friday night. Mm-hmm. It's kind of assumed that we kind of know. And, and I think early on, we were very guideline centric when social first came out. And it, it was, it was very awkward because we were trying to create, legislate these rules for human behavior that were very, very odd. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that era is kind of passed. But when you look at, you spend a lot of time looking at doctors. Tell me about what you see as sort of the the shining star of social media among physicians. Do you, you what's the best case that you've seen it being used for, kind of? Well, I think it depends on who the audience is. I have to say that I really like what um, Dr. Mike has been doing, especially lately around um, COVID-19 updates. I think that he had a fantastic interview with Dr. Fauci and just being able to get that information to the public and using a platform for good is incredible in this day and age. But there are also people who are not focused on having those conversations with the public. Instead, they really want to um, identify and speak to more technical audiences. You know, I I think it was always assumed that physicians on Twitter are there to educate their patients and their families and such. And truly, if you look at what docs are doing with Twitter and you look at just just how people are using it, it's really professional professionalism, right? I mean, that's kind of what you... Mm-hmm. Very few people are kind of creating for like a, you know, so much for like a public facing audience. Yeah. And I really like those smaller accounts, to be honest with you. I think it's fascinating to see the exchange of ideas and Mm -hmm. um, how people connect. What are your biggest concerns with doctors on social media in the year 2020? Uh, Are there any things that stick out that really bother you or concern you or keep you up at night? I am really concerned about everything that's been happening recently with COVID-19 and people speaking out who um, are outside their expertise, but because Mm -hmm. they carry the MD or the PhD, um, the public assumes that the information is credible. And um, I'm not sure if you've been seeing that as well. It's been in the minority, but when it does come up, it's it's an issue. Well, it's remarkable that Almost overnight, so many people blossomed as experts on COVID-19, people without experience and expertise in epidemiology, virology, or infectious disease. And this gets into this issue of influence or authority, rather. What constitutes what constitutes authority in the public realm? Uh, having a medical degree, I'm not absolutely sure, constitutes authority, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and people are kind of desperate to appear as 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 experts. Um, you know, we're in this attention economy, and visibility is money, and everyone wants to sort of be heard. Um, so it's for me the thing I struggle with is who should be the voices who are speaking out about COVID nineteen, and what qualifies someone now to the public. Most physicians do carry expertise among physicians, of course. Not really everyone is has a, has this expertise. Right. Yeah. And I think you wrote an article about that and it just really hits home and is absolutely fascinating to see that. And I think an element of it too, is that when you start to gain these followers, it's very attractive and seeing that there is this influence online and the ability to impact these conversations is something that I think people fall into a trap. Whereas normal day to day and interactions with colleagues, you wouldn't necessarily see that. You mean the trap is the traffic trap or the attention trap? The attention. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's intoxicating once you 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 hit it big with a tweet or a blog post or a podcast. There's something that kicks in psychologically, and there is a drive to want to get more of that, and it's it's validation and all sorts of other complicated things. But I think it's tricky. You know, Doctor Mike, you know, he's not a he's not a epidemiologist or a virologist. He's a family doctor, I think, right? Mm-hmm. But obviously, pulling in Dr. Fauci is the responsible way to use that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, there are others with platforms not quite as big as his, but with half as big, but who are, are posing on some level as uh, as experts. And, and I think that's kind of a problem. It is. And then also, whose responsibility is it to um, raise awareness about this issue when it comes to specific people? I think that's also an interesting conversation, especially within the medical field, where there tends to be this almost protection of other physicians, which I can completely understand. What's really interesting is that over the past couple of years along these lines, I've watched as more and more hardcore academicians appear into the social space. And this is we've seen this in cardiology especially. Mm-hmm. High-level researchers um, have become very critical of common cardiologists commenting on studies and clinical trials. And I've noticed this sort of division starting to appear between those academics who, who want to you know, create a division over whose opinion is really most worthy. You know, they're sort of dragging into the public networks this dated sense of authority. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's created a real rift because there are some really, really bright working cardiologists who have some real insight. They've actually, some of these people have identified flaws in studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine and other places. So it's been very interesting to watch those hardcore academicians come in and try to stake stake a claim to sort of a kind of academic or moral authority over information. Yeah, those conversations are always um, a bit disturbing to me. I know exactly mm-hmm. what you mean. And it just it would be best if those were kept out of public discussions, but right. they they tend to come up and there's nothing that can be done to prevent them. Yeah, I guess the, the saying is you, we, need, we need to look at the validity of ideas rather than the source of the idea, I guess, right? That's kind of the best way to look at it. Yeah. So any other concerns besides, I guess you talked about, we're, we're, we're touching on authority and people assuming authority over COVID. Any other concerns that you see, you, you have a lot. You have a lot of commentary on sort of things that that are that are happening and transpiring. 
Yeah, I think that when commentary or videos, any sort of content comes up where it jeopardizes the public's trust and medical professionals, there are it's an area that's worth discussing and exploring because unfortunately this is something that's been coming up repeatedly on all of the different social media platforms. And the, the common idea is that, well, if I don't have a large audience, I have nothing to worry about. And we know that's false. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, you're speaking to privacy issues, right? Privacy issues. Um, but then also just disparaging comments about patients so yeah, when I think about the concerns that I have, obviously privacy is uh, obviously the big one, and I and this is it's starting to creep in in strange areas. A good example is the sharing of medical images, mm-hmm. um, CAT scans, imaging that by definition or by HIPAA guidelines, if you asked a, a healthcare attorney, would say yeah, there's no unique information, but the unique shape and appearance of that chest CT and the shape of that tumor could very easily be identified to a patient and to discuss that without disclosure to the family the, the patient whose image that belongs to is really an obligate as it's a it's a moral breach really rather than a legal breach right absolutely yeah just because someone can't identify themselves doesn't mean there's going there's not issues there right i think we we tend to as Certainly, as young doctors, everything's centered on HIPAA, and if it meets HIPAA guidelines, then we are completely off the hook, which I've always suggested that we have a obligation that goes way above the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um, Actually, one of the first slides in my um, first-year workshop that I do is I show that physicians are not like other professions. You can't just be clocking in and clocking out of your professional identity. Exactly right. Uh, second concern I have, digital conflict of interest, as I call it. Um, as more and more physicians develop these very powerful platforms, um, we're seeing that these can be leveraged for paid partnerships without really clear disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's what I kind of call the veil disclosure, where they try to say they say things that kind of meet that feeling that they've disclosed it when it isn't really obvious to the consumer that there's a conflict there. And this is happening on Instagram really more than any place else with really young residents creating lifestyle brands and other things. And yeah, I think it's a problem. Absolutely. And it's starting younger and younger. I've been seeing recently that there are students who are now using doctor and their username because oh, really? yeah, they just want to hold that username so that when they do graduate, they have that secured. But of course, there's all sorts of issues with that. That's fascinating. I now that you mention, I've noticed that, but I never really quite noticed it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, it's there if you look for it. Yeah. So this conflict of interesting is that there's, there really hasn't been a broader approach to this by organized medicine, and uh, which I find kind of surprising. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's a problem. Uh, again, it goes. Uh, federal guidelines and federal laws about conflict uh, and also our our moral obligation to the people who consume information from us. Mm -hmm. So those privacy and conflict of interest are two big things I'm concerned about. The third is the limits of our voice and recognition of accountability. Um, And what I mean by that is we kind of get lulled into this techno-libertarian belief that our voice is kind of our voice and we can say and do whatever we please 
but we often forget at the speed of Twitter that most of us have some accountability to our peers or our institutions. Um, this has kind of come up around PPE with COVID. Some docs really pushed the limits about who they were holding accountable for their lack of PPE and got them into some hot water. Yeah, that's such a tricky conversation to be having right now. I sympathize so much with everybody who is running into these issues with PPE. And yeah, it's, but at the same time, there's concerns with being able to voice that opinion. I've had a a handful of physicians who have reached out and said, help, I didn't realize that what I was saying would get me in trouble with the PR team. I don't know what to do here. I, as a, as a specific rule, as I always used to tell the Baylor medical students, uh, what are the things I avoid? I avoid religion, politics, alcohol, and work. Mm-hmm. Um, and those four things will get you pretty far. If you can, you know, the flip argument there is this, again, gets back to this. Do we have an obligation? Do we have an obligation to discuss politics and discuss the next presidential election and to advocate for, for docs? And I can, I can see that. And, uh, but it's, it's very tricky territory. Yeah. So what did you think of the stay in your lane campaign that popped up? Around gun control. Yeah. You mean around the NRA? Yeah. 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 Uh, so what was fascinating about Stay in Your Lane is if you go back four years, let me just give a preamble to this. If you go back four years, the whole backlash around Stay in Your Lane never would have happened because we didn't have enough docs on social to make this happen. Once we had some key opinion leaders, folks like Esther Chu and others who were bold enough to step up and out and take a stand publicly, you got momentum behind them. And um, so historically, it was, to me, Stan Your Lane represented a real a real tipping point because it, it, it showed how docs were taking more of an activist role and felt comfortable. So historically, I thought it was very interesting. I, I you know, I think it's, it's political action. And um, I think it's not hardcore politics, it's more political action and it's advocacy. And mm-hmm. uh, it's something we should be doing. Um, but it can it it can it it can get into dicey areas. Yeah, some of these pol- these p- political arguments can get you into some dicey areas. But what right. do you think? Yeah, I agree with you completely. And um, some of the images that were shared too in the OR or ED were also a little bit concerning because um, again we talked about this issue with HIPAA. Um, well, it wasn't a HIPAA violation. Is it an ethical violation? Oh, you mean to share the the blood on the floor? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So privacy, digital conflict of interest, limits of our voice and accountability. And and finally, I mean, one of the, thing, the things I think about, of course, is, is management of footprint. Docs have to be uh, uh, you know, re- really thinking about their footprint and actively managing that's part of our new responsibility. So Yeah, definitely. It just every piece of content, every opinion you put out there, just remember that it's a digital trail. So. Right, 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 right. I do have, I'll tell you a concern I have. As more mm-hmm. and more docs have gotten into social, this gets into reputation management, but I'm a huge, huge advocate of the fact that we can't control what other people say about us, but we have 100% control over what we create. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be creating content that people can find that occupies the first half of the page of Google. And um, as more docs into Twitter, they're using social 
using conversation as their public presence instead of content creation. And I think that's a mistake because we really need to be creating stuff that people can find and uh, people can identify with us, stuff that is uh, has some legacy element to it. Even even the videos that you create on YouTube are things that they're somewhat uh, archival, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that it's good to be having these conversations, but you're absolutely right. Having that content out there that can easily be referred to is always helpful. Um, I've spoken to physicians who have repeatedly have these same conversations with patients and they've created videos and PDFs to um, so their patients can have resources available. And right. I, I love that idea. Misinformation. So for years, we have struggled with misinformation around, as a pediatrician, around vaccines with no help from big social, Mm -hmm. i.e. Facebook and Twitter and such. And in the early days of social media, we obviously believed that we kind of lived with this libertarian bias that suggested that the wisdom of the crowd would kind of take care of all the misinformation. And I get a sense that that's changing a bit with COVID because we're seeing the emergence of some conscience or some sense of responsibility from big social. And examples would be Facebook's move to notify you when you've shared misinformation about COVID. And YouTube has recently throttled back influencers ranked um, over over educational uh, content that comes from educational institutions. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing a change as well? I I am. But honestly, I feel like that's it's not enough. Um, mm-hmm. Once information started to populate, it took a hold, and now it's just going to be almost impossible to control and contain. Um, yeah. It's it's unfortunate, and I think that the way that Facebook, at least, is trying to approach this is it's still a little bit ambiguous. They're saying that if the content poses harm, then they're going to remove it. So they're taking down some groups that are calling for um, protests against the stay at home order, but other groups are remaining. So it's, I don't think they've gotten their act together. What do you, what what do you think we might expect uh, going forward? Do you think this is going to change? You think the problem with deep fakes and other forms of misinformation are going to get worse? So the deep fakes is an interesting topic because I've expressed some serious concerns over this. However, um, some of the um, computer science folks that I keep in touch with have said, from our perspective, this isn't a big deal because if you get into the nitty gritty on this, you'll see that the code is very clear. The pixels have clearly been manipulated. So from a technological perspective, we're okay. Um, I think Twitter did just recently announce that they are banning that type of content, anything that's been manipulated. I don't really know how they're managing that, if it's just all through AI. But if that's the case, that's a really good move. Sarah, how can people find you on the web and on social? Do you have what kind of what kind of footprint do you like to talk about? So my biggest platform is going to be Twitter, and you can find me there um, as S A R A H underscore. M-O-J-A-R-A-D. And then I'm also on YouTube and Instagram. I have to say that I absolutely love the uh, the threads and the topics that you bring up and and uh, bring to us on Twitter. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you do a great job with those. I will chime in. I will make a, I'll editorialize on Twitter threads. My concern is it's really hard to find these threads, these threads after the fact. And 
a lot of these docs should be creating content on, as I said, you know, just suggesting on sort of more archival mm-hmm. media. But Sarah, thank you very much for joining us for this amazing conversation in the exam room. I love how you're shaping a conversation around information authority and public media. And I look forward to what you create and the threads you start in the future. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed the discussion. And as always, you can stay aware of new episodes by following 33 Charts on Facebook, and you you can subscribe to our uh, awesome email over at 33charts.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.